Let's continue in our worship. Really, the, the pinnacle of the worship is to hear from God's Word, to hear it proclaimed, to, to take it in, to apply it to our own hearts, to let the Spirit work on us. And I want you, please, this morning to open your Bibles to Jonah. If you're visiting for the very first time, what I do is go verse by verse through books of the Bible, usually, unless we're doing a special sermon. We've been working chapter by chapter through Jonah, looking at what the verses teach. What is the intent of the author here? What is the intent of Jonah as he's writing this and God inspiring Jonah to write this account? What are we supposed to learn from it? That's what we want to look at. We look at the grammar, we look at the historical context, and and we apply that. The Spirit applies that, and we see what God has to say to us today. Even though this was written thousands of years ago, it does speak to us today. It does help us to understand who God is and what He expects of us. So I want to read the passage to you. I want to explain it, and I want to apply it. Jonah chapter 4, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade, till he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. When God appointed a worm, when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? What we see here is anger over God's sovereign grace. Grace is that, that undeserved favor that God gives when he saves people. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It means that we can do nothing to earn God's favor, that he chooses sovereignly whom he will give it to. He gives it to them. Of course, we must repent. Of course, we must have faith. But God is sovereign over that. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn his grace. It's more, too, than just unmerited favor. It's the fact that everyone's condemned to eternal punishment. It would be as if someone is on death row and you went and took their place. You didn't know them. They did nothing to ask you for it. And you just showed up and took their spot and died for them. That's what Christ did for us as believers. He did not ask us to do anything. Christ died on the cross for sinners. And in time, that's applied to us when we repent and have faith. 
Well, that's a short explanation of God's sovereign grace, but as wonderful as it is, not everyone is happy about it. Even believers are not happy when people get saved. Jonah's not happy here. Today, people aren't always happy. Uh, They're not happy when uh, others get saved that they hate, that they don't like. Even believers can, can have a type of hatred in their heart for other cultures, other skin colors, other ethnicities, other languages, other countries that people originate from. Sometimes people are very angry when that murderer is saved in prison. He killed someone from my family. How can God forgive him? Sometimes Americans are angry when Muslims get saved and turn to Christ. They have uh, attacked our nation in times past. How can God forgive them? And we could just go on and on with that list. Well, it's not a new phenomenon. As I said, Jonah experienced it thousands of years ago here. Often this chapter, chapter 4, challenges us about Jonah the prophet. Not only does chapter 1 challenge us when Jonah runs away from God, but here we have Jonah not ending on a very good note. Often the kids' books have Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the great fish. Or we're taught in Sunday school growing up that the city was saved and repented. But this last part of Jonah's story is sometimes left out of the kids' books and left out of some Sunday school classes. It doesn't end well in the book for Jonah. We'll talk more about that at the end of today's sermon. But just to catch you up on what's happened so far in the book, because chapter 4 really stands upon what's already come before it. In chapter 1, we could just say the title for that is, I won't go. Jonah said, I won't go. And he didn't. He ran away from God, even though God gave him a special mission to go to Nineveh and preach a message. In chapter 2, Jonah said, I will go. Because God saved him from drowning at the bottom of the ocean and appointed a fish to go and swallow him up. And so Jonah praised the Lord. Jonah glorified God. He didn't repent of his sin. He didn't confess his sin, but he praised God for delivering him. And he said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Chapter 3, we could say, uh, is a good title, I'm here. You know, God, you you spit me out here, this fish. I'm here. I'm gone. I'm going to preach the message. And people got saved. The whole city repented. They says they believed in God in chapter 3. They turned from their sin. They showed it. They put on sackcloth. The king sat on ashes and put on sackcloth. They even put sackcloth on their animals to show their repentance. And they said, who knows, maybe God will relent from the judgment that he has given through Jonah. That the city would be destroyed. That was the judgment. And then we come to chapter 4 and it's Jonah basically saying, I shouldn't have come. I shouldn't have come. I didn't want to go anyway. I eventually went because you made me God. I did what you said. And now I shouldn't have come. And we see at the end of chapter 3, really, what he's so upset about. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, the deeds of the wicked pagan Ninevites. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented. He didn't change his mind. He didn't repent as in turning away from sin. But he relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. He did not do that which he had Jonah proclaimed was going to happen. He says he did not do it. He did not do it. And and really through most of chapter 3, Jonah's dropped out of view. We don't even hear from Jonah. He goes, he just preaches to one third of the city. Then he's off the scene And we hear of this message of repentance. But now he's cropped up again in chapter 4. And we see this battle that he has with God again. He had it in chapter 1. It was a physical departure. 
But now he has this internal battle in his heart. Instead of physically running away, he's now fighting with God over what God did. Jonah thinks he could play God better than God himself. Jonah has gone through the motions. He's did what God told him to do, but he's not happy with the outcome at all. And he's not afraid to let God know about it. His heart is still resistant to God. So this chapter could be broken into two main parts. We'll look at those. First of all, I want you to see unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger in Jonah. As believers, as born again, saved, righteous in Christ Christians, we can have sinful anger. Christ had a type of anger that was not sinful. He overturned the money changers. He he made a whip and whipped it at them to run them out of the temple. That's righteous anger. And Paul indicates in Ephesians 4 that a believer can have righteous anger, but he warns us about wrathful anger, sinful anger. There's a type of anger, and it's very common for us to fall back into a type of anger that's sinful, a type of anger that is not in accordance with the law of God, not in accordance with what Scripture teaches. And we fall into that. We get angry at others, and we get angry at God. Well, that's what we see Jonah doing here. It says in verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah. That's what it says in the NASB. Uh, it, it gets the point across, but literal would be, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. That's what the original says. Jonah's calling God evil and saving Nineveh. That's what he thought was evil. That God had relented from his calamity on Nineveh, which he had threatened. And that made Jonah very angry, angry enough to call God evil. To call God evil. To call what is good evil. That in itself is a sin. His unrighteous anger is out of control here. And it's to the point where he's willing to call God evil for doing evil. The whole city, from the king down to the pauper, turned and repented and believed in God and turned from sin. Jonah should rejoice. And what did he do? He calls God evil. He's saying that, God, you've done an evil thing here and saving Nineveh, and delivering them from immediate destruction. Jonah would have had a party. He would have rejoiced had Nineveh been destroyed. But it wasn't. And God saved them, and he's calling God evil. And he became angry because of that. It says that he became angry. He was literally burning with anger. Burning with anger. Look back at chapter 3, verse 9. The same phrase is used for God here. What does it say in 3, 9? The king is, is saying, let's repent. Let's show repentance. And he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. As planned before all eternity, God had relented of their calamity that he was about to bring on them. And he's no longer angry. God's not angry at Nineveh. They've repented. He's forgiven them. They've believed in God. But Jonah is angry. He has a a burning anger. He's essentially taken the place of God here and said, God, if you won't be angry at Nineveh, I will. I know better than you, God. The greatest evangelistic movement ever recorded in history, right here in Jonah chapter 3. At least 120,000, I think more like 600,000, and we'll look at that, but 600,000 people probably saved. What does he do? He gets mad. He calls God evil. He gets angry about it. He doesn't celebrate at all. They'd been converted to God their Savior. They had known the true God. And Jonah's angry. A burning anger. He hated the Ninevites. He believed they deserved swift justice from God. He has rejected and 
and repudiated God's grace and goodness to them. He's all for God's grace for himself. He's all for God's grace for Israel, but not for Nineveh. Makes him angry. And so he turns to God and he, in his anger, he prays a prayer. And it's really a complaining prayer. A lamenting, complaining, bitter prayer. In it is, is truth. In it is good theology. But he's actually mad about who God is. So he prayed to the Lord. The, the Lord in all caps means Yahweh in Hebrew, the covenant name of God. And he says, please, please, Yahweh, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. We finally learn here for the first time why Jonah ran away. We've talked about it before, but we finally see it in his own words. And if you're reading Jonah for the first time, you may not know. Why is he running? Why is he running? And suddenly here we get his own words as he's speaking from his heart to God. I knew this would happen. He didn't want to see God change the hearts of the Ninevites. He didn't want to see that. And he didn't want to see God show loving compassion for these pagans, these Gentiles, these Assyrians. He wanted God to judge them. He wanted God to wipe them out. Let them pay for what they have done, Jonah thought. But I knew. I knew if I went. I knew how you work, God. I knew what happens. You always have this characteristic, this attribute to save. And so he's mad and he's upset. And he actually knew uh, the prophet Amos' prophecy that someday Assyria is going to come and destroy the northern kingdom where Jonah's from. Israel had been divided. You got the north and the south at this time. Two kingdoms. The north uh, regularly went into apostasy and God told them, I will destroy you. Repent. Turn away. Put away your false gods or I will destroy you. And they would repent for a while. And they would bring out the false gods. Same thing in the south. It just took longer in the south. But here we have Jonah upset because he knows. Amos said that Assyria would come and they would take Israel away. And they would eat in a land that's not theirs. And they would eat food in the land of Assyria. They'd be taken captive. So Jonah's upset. They're pagans. They're Gentiles. How could you do this, God? They're going to come and destroy us someday. How dare you? How dare you? This is why I didn't want to go. He's justifying his sin, isn't he? Don't we do that sometimes? We justify our sin. See, God, that's why I committed this sin, so I could not do that sin, and that might lead to another sin. And we just keep on justifying things in our mind. That's what Jonah's doing here. Yeah, you told me to go, but I didn't want to, and it's not that big a deal because see what happened? This is why. I knew better, God. I knew better than you. But how did he know that God would save them? How how did he know that? How did he know that God would relent from his pronounced judgment? Because he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. He wasn't there when God saved Israel. He wasn't there when God made promises and a covenant to Abraham. But he knew his Bible. And he knew what it said. And so here he begins to quote from the Old Testament. The first place this shows up is in Exodus 34. After the golden calf incident. And Moses has interceded for Israel. And Moses has begged God not to destroy Israel. And eventually, uh, God relents and God gives him a second table of commandments. And, and he tells Moses a very special thing about God. And, and here Jonah repeats this. Jonah says, I knew that you are, and here's a quote from the Old Testament, a gracious and compassionate God, a slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. God is gracious. He shows that grace, that undeserved favor to people that he chooses, that he chooses to show it to, which means we can't earn it. It's free grace. You can't buy it. You can't pay for it. It's free. 
And Jonah knew, God, you do that to people. And not only that, but you show them compassion. You see, it says he's also compassionate. These are attributes, characteristics of God. In other words, God shows mercy to those who cannot help themselves, the helpless. God saves and God sanctifies the helpless, the sinners. He makes them saints. He makes them holy. And he's slow to anger. Not only is God gracious, not only is he compassionate, but Jonah says, God, I knew you were slow to anger. You've said that since the days of Moses. You've promised it to Israel, that you're not quick to get angry, that you're patient, that you wait for us to turn back to you. Look how loving God is here. Even in his anger, even in his unrighteous anger, Jonah knows the truth about God. He can't deny the truth. Just like in chapter 1, he said he feared God. Well, maybe he did fear God, but not quite in his actions. It wasn't showing up the way he lived. Well, here, he knows who God is, and he doesn't like it. Also, God is abundant, it says, in loving kindness. I like the word loving kindness. Most translations don't have that word in there anymore, but it's the the hesed love, the covenant love, the everlasting love that he promised to Israel. It's God's free grace shown in his actions and his love as he responds. And he loves on his people. The hesed love. These are attributes of God. They're listed 12 times total in the Old Testament. This list, this almost exact list of attributes. This quote from Exodus 34. And it's always, except in Jonah, always applied to Israel. These things he's promised to Israel. He never said that he would give them to others. He never said he wouldn't give them to others, but he's writing to Israel with the Old Testament books. And so Jonah struggles with the fact they're applied now to Gentiles. If you go to the left in your Bible there in the Minor Prophets, go past Obadiah, Amos, you'll get to Joel chapter 2. See, Jonah knew his Bible. He knew not only way back in the days of Moses, but he knew the recent prophets and what they had said. And it's sometimes hard to date some of these Minor Prophets, but probably Joel prophesied before Jonah. And so we're looking at the prophecy of Joel and we come to chapter 2 and we come to verse 12. And listen to this. This is speaking to Israel. They've sinned. God's going to punish them. And here's what Joel writes of God. God's speaking through Joel. Joel 2.12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart. Tear up your own heart. Don't talk about outward garments being torn to show off. Rend your own heart. Humble yourself. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Relenting of evil here, evil being a calamity, a judgment that will come upon people. In the ancient world, evil was just anything bad that happened. Or any bad thoughts or actions that you did. It it encompassed all of that. So if a storm came and wiped out your house, that was evil. And if you went and killed somebody, that was evil. It was all considered bad. And so what he's saying here is that God relents from calamities that he's going to bring upon people. That's something new. It's not even back in Exodus 34. And so we have Jonah essentially not only quoting Moses, or God through Moses, but also Joel too. And he's saying, how dare you, God, with all these attributes that you've revealed and all these promises you've made to Israel, how dare you apply that to the Gentiles as well? It's our promise. It's our promise, he says. It's our promise, not the Gentiles, not Nineveh, 
the most wicked city and nation in the world. The ones who have destroyed and murdered, massacred whole cities. You're going to give it to them? This same promise, the same love? Yeah, that's what he's doing. Because it's God's sovereign grace. He gets to choose what to do with it. But Jonah's not happy. You know, he says, it's fine, God, if you forgive Israel. But it's not fine to forgive our enemies, those sinful pagans. But it's God's prerogative. It's God's sovereignty. Paul says it like this in in the New Testament, Romans 9.15. There he's quoting back to Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, Moses is asking, show me your glory. You know that, that scene where God says, you can't see my face or you will die. No man can see me and live. But he describes himself to Moses. He does pass by, but Moses doesn't really see his face. And he describes himself. And Paul quotes that in Romans 9.15, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's up to God whom he will serve. It's not up to Jonah. It's not up to us. We can't ban missionaries from going overseas to the Middle East just because we don't like them. We, we can't do those things. It's not even Christian not to like them in the first place. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. We're supposed to pray that they would be saved. But we certainly can't get mad at God for saving other cultures, other ethnicities, other countries. No matter what dictators and and governments do, God is working to save people. He's working to save people. So it's not up to us. He's, He's holy. He's righteous. His purposes will stand. His purposes are true. His purposes are good. We have no problem with Romans 8, 28. You know, God works all things good for the people who love him. If it applies to us, we're fine. But do we also Realize that God's also out there saving people that we might not be happy about. We may not be excited about. But it's based on the character of God. It's not based on us. It's based on who God is. And so what Jonah's just witnessed in Nineveh's deliverance does not make him happy at all. And he even adds this part from Joel 2. One who relents concerning calamity. Or evil in Joel. Calamity in, in our translation in Jonah. Something bad happening, a divine punishment. I knew, God, if I went there and I just told him to repent, you're so loving, you're so gracious, you're so compassionate, you are so slow to anger, you're going to relent. You're not going to do it. I didn't want to go. And I was justified in not going. He doesn't like who God is. That's his problem. It's not that he's upset with himself. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't like who God is. He doesn't like God for his grace. He's very angry about that. He's a hypocrite. He proclaimed in his prayers the divine attributes of God here. And yet he's a hypocrite. He doesn't even like these loving attributes. God's grace is wonderful. When when it's given to Israel, it's wonderful. When it's given to all people, it's wonderful. We have to thank him for that, worship him for that. We don't get to determine what's right and wrong. Jonah's putting himself in the place of God. And so what does he say? He gets to verse 3. Therefore, therefore, O Lord, take my life. Please, just take my life from me. For death is better than life. Just take it away. Just just kill me, Lord. Just kill me. There's no reason to let me live. You've done so much evil in my sight, God. Look what you've done. I'd rather rather die. I'd rather just die than face the fact that my enemies have been saved through me. Why do I have to be the, the means by which they're saved? How dare you, God? It's better to just die now and be done with this world than to see you act this way. And we see Jonah, and we know that his name is Dove, and we know that that's probably indicating not only his real name, but doves are dumb, they're senseless. That's how he's acting. We look at this and we say, how could you be like that? How could you be like that, Jonah? But remember, what's the book written for? For people, God's people, to read. 
and to learn a lesson. So every time we point the finger at Jonah, we realize we ought to examine our own hearts as well. This is there in our own hearts. Maybe less so, the more sanctified you are, the more you grow in the faith, but it's there. It's there. How much wickedness do we see in Jonah's heart here? He'd rather die than see 600,000 people saved? Wow, he's a believer. He's a believer. We already established that. He had a true prophecy in 2 Kings to the, to the King Jeroboam there. It came true. Everybody recognized him as a prophet. That's why the book's in the Bible. He's a believer. But he's backslidden. He's fallen away. He's physically ran away. And he's still showing here that even though God brought him back and restored him to being a prophet, he's still showing that he's got sin in his heart, indwelling sin, and he's letting it run loose. He's letting it run loose like we often do as believers. We have to be killing our sin, mortifying our sin, the New Testament says. Constantly, constantly striving for holiness. Otherwise, we end up just like this, hating God for who he is, justifying our sin, justifying and making excuses for the way we are. We need to look to God. We need to say, this is who you are, God. I want to obey you. I want to worship you. I want to faithfully serve you. That would have been the right response, but he doesn't do that. So verse 4, God's going to teach him. God's going to begin to ask him questions. And the main question God gives us here in verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? You know, God completely ignores Jonah's death wish here. Jonah says, let me just die. It's not the first time Jonah says it. It's not going to be the last time he says it. Let me just die. God ignores that. He goes straight to the heart issue, you know, like you should do in biblical counseling. God's a good biblical counselor, you know. He goes straight to the heart, straight to the heart. Do you have good reason to be angry? Why are you even mad? What's your reasons for being upset? God's graciously setting out to teach Jonah something here with a question. A simple question. If Jonah had stopped and thought about it and realized that his heart motives were sinful, he may have repented, but he decided to persist. But God is saying, Jonah, you want to talk about what is good and evil? You want to call me evil, Jonah? Let's talk about if you have a good reason to act this way. You want to talk about what is right and wrong? Let me ask you this, Jonah. Is it right to be angry with me? This is what he's going to do. This whole passage, God's going to just come back to this point. Is it right for you to be angry with me for this? And really, God's compassionate. Much like Job, you know, Job spends all those chapters just complaining. You know, he doesn't fall into outright acts of sin, but in his heart, he's just like, why, God? Why, God? Come and talk to me. Let's have a court session here, God. You get to the end of Job, and what does God do? He shows up, and he just asks Job a bunch of questions. And then Job says, you're too much for me, God. I repent in dust and ashes. You know, I turn away from that thought. Well, it's the same with Jonah here. God says, do you have good reason to be angry? I mean, who are you, Jonah, to question God, really? It's like the parable of the day laborers in Matthew 20. You know that parable where the guy goes out to hire people to work on his property and all day he's hiring people and they get paid the same amount whether they work 10 hours or one hour. So the guys who work 10 hours, they're not happy. Master, how, how could you pay them the same rate? And the master says, it's up to me, not up to you to give people their wages. Are you getting upset because of my goodness and grace? And Jesus is teaching a lesson there about God's grace. The Jews were upset that the Gentiles were eventually going to be brought in. And, and Jesus was preaching to sinners and prostitutes. There's also that parable of the slave. You know, he goes out and uh, he owes millions, billions of dollars. And the uh, master brings him in, says, pay up. You owe me billions of dollars, American terms. And, and what happens? He begs for his life. He begs for his life. And the master grants it to him. And what does he do? 
Does he go out and proclaim how good the master is? Does he go out and proclaim that he's been forgiven? No, he goes and finds a fellow slave who owes him $10 and beats him up, jokes him, and throws him in a debtor's prison. That's Jonah. You know, Jonah goes and preaches the message and all these people get saved through his preaching. And what happens? He goes and complains to God. He doesn't talk about how great and awesome God is. He complains. Who does he think he is? What reason do you have to complain? Do we not complain about God's sovereignty in our lives too? Those of us who are Christians, you ever complain about God's sovereignty? You ever complain about the weather? That's complaining about God's sovereignty. Do you ever uh, complain that he's doing something to us in our life that you're not happy about? Do you get angry at God for the fact that he's putting us through trials as if we know better of what to do in our life? Do you ever get angry at God's sovereignty thinking that you can govern the world better than him? You know, if I was God, I would, I would do this in the world and that in the world. And I would make sure this happens. If God would just make me president, you know, I, I would fix all the world's problems. Do you ever think that Somehow, we expect the Lord to forgive us, but then we don't want to see our enemies pardoned. God, please forgive me, but that guy, he's done so much. He's done so much. What right do we have to be angry at God? What right do we have to be angry at God? R.C. Sproul says it like this. He says, we're too much like Jonah. We're hoping that God will crush our enemies instead of saving them. But as the Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked, neither may we. May our longing always be for the repentance and restoration of God's foes and ours. There's no one too far gone. There's no one too far gone. So that's the unrighteous anger. And there's a lot of truth in that unrighteous anger as Jonah expresses it to God, but he's just upset and he's angry. And we spent some time just looking at that because we need to establish what's going on there before we move into number two, the undeserved grace. The rest of the passage is about this undeserved grace. Jonah's angry at God's undeserved grace. It's not deserved. As I said, it's, it's unmerited favor for the condemned, for the person who should be punished. And yet God shows favor. God saved me. Why did he save me and not my neighbor? Why did he save me and not the other people in my high school or, or not everyone else in my high school and my college? Why did he save me? Was it because of something I did? Was I more righteous? Was I more holy as an unbeliever? I can tell you I wasn't. Why did he choose me? I don't know. He had a purpose. The Bible says he had a purpose. The Bible said he's good. The Bible says he's holy. It's undeserved. I don't know. Because if I could point out anything, then I would be saying, I did something to move God's hand. I did something to earn God's grace. It's undeserved. What did Nineveh do? Yeah, you say they repented, but later we find out in the New Testament, where does repentance come from? It comes from God opening the heart first. God opens the heart and allows for repentance and faith and gives the ability to repent and believe. He takes off the, the old hardened heart and he, he pulls it out and puts a new one in so we can believe. So we see God's undeserved grace. God's now going to teach Jonah about this. It's one of the greatest lessons in the world. God's undeserved grace. It's what a lot of Christians don't understand. I mean, you can, you can be a person who experiences God's grace and not even really understand how to explain it. Or maybe even hear it for the first few times about God's sovereignty and his grace and, and reject it. Having experienced it yourself, Jonah's going to learn a lesson. God's going to show him a lesson here. Verse 5, Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it. He's got nothing else to say to God. You notice he didn't answer God's question. Do you have good reason to be angry? What does Jonah do? Not dealing with that, just leaves, leaves town. Up until this point, he's been in the city. Probably the 40 days hasn't even passed. He went one day in 
Everybody repents in the city after one day of preaching. He didn't even get through the whole city. Word spreads. The king makes a proclamation. All the nobles join in. Everyone repents. And he knows it's over. They're not going to be destroyed. Some people think he waited 30 days before he went out. I guess that's possible, but I don't see it here in the text. And he goes out and he goes out through the main gate on the east side and he finds a hillside to set down. He's going to see what happens. And when he sits down, he makes a shelter for himself and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what's going to happen. Why is he watching the city? Why is he looking? What's his hope there? I'm so mad at God. And I've taught God a lesson, he says. God's doing an evil thing here. And now that I've explained it to him in my prayer, he might change his mind. I'm going to go outside and see what happens. I'm just going to camp out here and see if God actually destroys the city. Because, you know, maybe their repentance isn't that real. Or maybe God will see that they're going to start sinning tomorrow. Then he'll wipe them out. Then he'll wipe them out. So he's watching and he he makes a little shelter. He makes a little shelter waiting to see if God's going to destroy the city. And, and he builds a little lean-to, uh, an actual booth. The word is a booth like they built in the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. A little hut to camp out in. Not much. A few sticks, a few twigs, a few leaves. Things are probably going to blow over multiple times a day. Leaves are going to wilt and fall off. But it gives them just a little protection from the sun. It's just a crude shelter. And it gets really hot there, so any, any shade is helpful. But this, this pouting prophet's going to be taught the lesson in that booth. So God focuses on that. So the Lord God. Verse 6. You notice that Lord God? Yahweh Elohim. Lord is Yahweh in Hebrew. God is just a general name for God, Elohim. But it's a combination. There's a switch that's happening here. And if you look at the text, Jonah's always dealing with the Lord, Yahweh. Whenever Jonah has dealings with God, it's Yahweh. Whenever the pagans have dealings with God, it's just God. Covenant name, Yahweh, that's who Israel deals with. They get to know his name. They get to experience covenant love, loving kindness. Ninevites, pagan sailors, they get to experience Elohim. They don't know much about this God, but they believe in him. Eventually the sailors even call out to Yahweh. But now there's a switch that's going to happen after verse 6. And we see it signaled here in the beginning of it. Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Then it's just going to be God all the way down. Why? Why the switch? Jonah's about to be put in the position of a pagan Gentile. You're complaining about the Gentiles? Let me teach you a lesson. I'm about to relate to you as just Elohim. Not your personal covenant God. But I'm going to put you in the place of Nineveh and teach you a lesson from the God of all creation. So he appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah. It's either a castor oil plant, which is a large bush. This isn't just a bush like we have here, but eight to ten feet. Big leaves, it'll shade people. It makes the castor bean, castor oil, the poison ricin comes from that. Grows throughout the Middle East. Could also be a gourd vine. Some people argue that's a gourd vine. I ran across a funny story that Augustine, you know, the early church father, that wrote quite a bit of theology. And Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, they had this big, bitter controversy over whether this was a gourd or a castor oil plant. And it created all this tension in the early church. And they're fighting over it because Jerome translated it differently and Augustine didn't like it. If it was a gourd vine, then it, then it, it would have climbed up the shelter, sprouted these big leaves that come out from the gourd vine, and shaded Jonah fully. And so he's happy about this. He's happy. Of course Jonah's going to be happy. But God gives us 
the reason that he did it. First of all, to be a shade over his head. Again, God's showing mercy. He's showing compassion. Just like he did in Nineveh. Don't we love God's compassion and mercy when it comes to us? Rightly so. We love it. But here, it's to teach Jonah a lesson. Second reason. It says to deliver him from his discomfort. Literally to save him from his evil. His calamity. Not, not the discomfort, I don't think, of the sun, but it's the play on evil throughout this passage, back and forth. Jonah calls God evil. Uh, God's going to do this evil to Nineveh. And now God's going to save Jonah from his evil, his wicked attitude. He's got a wicked attitude. He thinks that he can tell God what to do. And it's amazing that God didn't just burn him up, just zap him. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God said, you find 10 righteous people there, Abraham, and I'll, I won't, I'll spare the city. Couldn't even find 10 righteous people. Hellfire, brimstone. What happened to two of God's covenant priests who went into the tabernacle and burned strange fire? Immediately, God burned them up. Sons of the high priest. It's amazing how gracious God is to us that he doesn't just take us out right when we sin. He's patient. He's kind. Some people he does take out, but many, many of us have experienced God's discipline and love after we've sinned. So it's to deliver him from his evil heart, his wickedness that he has about who God is. He's going to appoint this plant as a means of delivering Jonah. How's that going to work? We'll see. And Jonah's extremely happy. He rejoiced, literally rejoiced over the plant with great rejoicing. It's 110 degrees in the summer there on average in the Assyrian desert, in the heat outside Nineveh. 110 degrees today, as it would have been back then. He is so happy about this shade. Now he can camp out there for days, weeks. He just needs to find a little food. Sit back and watch the show. Watch the fireworks. You know, he's waiting for the fireworks to come down from heaven onto this city. He's comfortable. God let him be comfortable. God gave him shade so that he would get in a comfortable position. And what's God going to do next? He's going to take it away. He's going to take it away to show a lesson. But God appointed a worm. He appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. It's amazing the language here. Not only God appoint the worm, but the worm attacks the plant. It would have taken days for a worm to eat up a plant like that, but in one day, one night really, the plant is dead. It's withered away because of this worm who can usually make quick work of a, of a supple stalk. But miraculously, God grew the plant up. Miraculously, God sends the worm to eat it up. He attacked the plant. So here in verse 7, God sends the worm to show that he's a God of judgment. He can destroy things. He can make things and he can destroy things. Back in verse 6, God's showing that he's a God of delivering someone from calamity. He makes the plant grow up. Shade Jonah. Next verse, takes it away. Makes me think of Job 121. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God's holy. He's righteous. He knows what to do. And he's doing a lesson here for Jonah. Verse 8. It continues. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. You see how many times appointed has come up in the text? What does that mean? Appointed, appointed. It means God sovereignly created and chose it for a specific purpose. God's sovereignty is he chooses and he brings it about. Remember, uh, he appointed Jonah as a prophet. He gave an appointed mission. He appointed the great wind, it says in chapter 1. 
He appointed the waves and the billows, uh, Jonah says in chapter 2. It says God appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah and deliver him to the safely on dry land. He appoints the fish to vomit up Jonah. He appoints Nineveh to repent, essentially, and to be saved. He appoints here the plant. He appoints the worm. He appoints the wind. God's sovereignty is all over this book of Jonah. People who fight against God's sovereignty, really, you know, if they're trying to be consistent, you just rip the book of Jonah out because it's all about God's sovereignty. But they didn't have a problem because the whole Bible is about God's sovereignty from beginning to end. God created, God will restore and bring down the new city of Jerusalem at the end of the Bible. So don't rip up your Bibles. Just keep coming back and listen to God's sovereignty proclaimed in the passage. God is sovereign over all things. He can appoint a worm. He can change men's hearts. He can do as he pleases because he is God and he's good. And the sun beat down. Literally, the sun also attacked Jonah's head. So he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. So the sun comes out. His, his shade is gone. The east wind kicks up. So not only is it 110 degrees, but you got this huge east wind coming in. It's called the Sirocco winds. When this wind is experienced in the east, the temperature rises dramatically. The humidity drops quickly. It's a constant, extremely hot wind that contains fine particles of dust. And they've even done research to show how neurotransmitters in the brain get changed as this positive ionic dust is flying past your face all day in the heat. And you began to get pressed. You began to, to feel down. Of course, that's not going to help Jonah's mood. He's already upset at God. He's already angry. And now he's back to saying, death is better to me than life. One day he's extremely happy. The very next day he'd rather die. He's acting like a three-year-old, right? He's acting like a little kid. You know, the, the kids, you know, one day you give them everything they want and they're happy. The next day, you know, they're saying they hate you. Well, that's how Jonah's acting. That's how we act, by the way, to God sometimes. God, how can you do this? How can you take this away from me? Were we praising him the day before? He is God. So God brings up that question that Jonah failed to answer. Verse 9, he never answered it. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Before he was asking about Nineveh, now he rephrases it to put it in context of the plant. He's going to teach Jonah a lesson. This time Jonah answers, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. He's just not stopping, is he? He's not going to turn. He's not going to repent, at least in the book of Jonah here. The sun's beating down on him. The heat, this hot Sirocco wind, it's giving him heat exhaustion. He, he, he's so mad at God about this, he's ready to die. I think this is the third time in the book of Jonah he's ready to die. He's just so mad at God. And he says, for good reason. Of course I'm angry, God. Look at what has happened to me. I came out here to have a nice siesta in the shade. I watched the fireworks as you just destroyed this city. That doesn't happen. You give me this plant. I'm so happy about it. Next day, you take it away. What's going on, God? I can't even trust you. He's doubting God at this point. I can't even trust you. You're so unpredictable, God. You do whatever you want. I can't control you. What's the point? Just, just kill me. Kill me. Take me home. So now God tells him the lesson. The last two verses. God just tells him the lesson here. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. He's comparing this plant to what happened with Nineveh. Jonah had compassion on the plant. He had pity on a little plant because he got shade from it. As long as he's getting something out of the deal, he's happy. God had compassion on Nineveh. What did God get out of compassion on Nineveh? God got nothing to improve himself. When sinners repent and come to God, does God 
change? Does God get more out of it? No, he doesn't change. But yet here's Jonah complaining. Jonah did nothing. He got God's grace here in the shade. Nineveh repented. They actually did something of significance. God relented. He gave him his grace. And Jonah's angry. More importantly than all of those, Jonah cares more about this little plant than he does people. He cares more about... Wait, today we have people who care more about animals than they do people. Jonah cared more about a plant, a little bush or a vine, than he does hundreds of thousands of people. So God just says, from the lesser to the greater, look, if you cared so much about this little plant... Why are you making a big deal? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there's 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? 120,000 people, they don't know the difference between their right and their left. What is that? Who doesn't know the difference between their right and their left? Little kids. Young children. Young children. Some say, well, it's, it's more along the lines of spiritually wrong. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. But there is this idea in Scripture that there's young children who don't know right and wrong. They still have a sin nature. They're still born in sin. But but they don't know yet. They haven't learned yet what's right and wrong until a certain age. And Jonah's saying, look, if the repentance doesn't move you, there's 120,000 little kids there. Can I not have compassion on my own creation? Can I have compassion on my own creation? And if if you don't care about the children there, the animals are there too. They didn't do anything. What did the animals do to sin? Jonah, you just want me to wipe out everything? Animals, children, adults that have already repented? Cattle didn't do anything. That's God's creation. He can have compassion on his own creation if he chooses. So God sovereignly chooses whom he will have compassion on. And it's completely in line with with who he is. It is part of who he is. Why is Jonah getting angry? Who is he to get angry about that? I think we could say to Jonah, you're the biggest hypocrite. You're the biggest hypocrite. How dare you take God's grace for granted, keep it for yourself, not care about others whom God wants to show grace to as well. And you know what? Sometimes we can say to ourselves, you're the biggest hypocrite. You're the biggest hypocrite. You had an opportunity to say something biblical and edifying to that believer and you didn't. You had an opportunity to tell that person the gospel and you didn't. Is it because you didn't want to see them saved? Is it because you didn't care if they were saved? Well, God has the last word here, though, doesn't he? He does. He has the last word. Jonah's done his duty. He's hid behind his duty. He, he, he said, I've done what you told me, God, but I'm not happy about it. You know, I think Jonah did repent. I think he repented when he wrote his book, before he wrote his book. Why is it here? How do we know the motives of Jonah's heart? Because he wrote it. He wrote it. If, if other people wrote it, it would be hard to, to know the motives of his own heart. Jonah knows how he felt. He writes this. And he doesn't portray himself in a nice light. Just like the New Testament doesn't portray the apostles as being, you know, infallible and super wise. They're infallible when they write scripture, but they make a lot of mistakes along the way as Jesus is training them. Jonah made a lot of mistakes. God brought him back. He continued to sin. But eventually Jonah learned his lesson. He learned his lesson. And the reason it ends here with the question is because we're supposed to ask ourselves the same questions. It's not right for God to show compassion on Whomever he wants. God's great compassion. That's the theme of the book of Jonah. The Assyrians were a brutal people. They were brutal. I'll remind you of a passage I read last week. A quote from history. One Assyrian ruler boasted, Nobles I flayed, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. I cut off the noses and ears and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. Maidens I burned as a holocaust. Maybe you're here today. 
you're a rebel running from God. Maybe you're here thinking, God can't forgive me. Maybe you're an Assyrian and you've done all these sins and you said, you know, God can't forgive me. Maybe you're a Jonah. You've done all this sin and said, I'm done for. There's no use. I just might as well go on and die. This book teaches us there's no sin so great that the sacrifice of Jesus can't cover. There's no sin that we could commit that's so great that the sacrifice of Jesus cannot cover. He forgave 600,000 pagans in Nineveh, ones that he would later use to go and wipe out his covenant nation that had sinned against him. Later, God, 100 years later, will wipe out Assyria as well. But this generation he saved. There's no sin too great that can't be forgiven. Jonah learned that lesson. He wrote it for us to learn a lesson. And let, let's learn the lesson. Let's repent. Let's turn to God. Let's believe in God. Let's stop backsliding as believers. And if you're an unbeliever, let's turn to God for the first time. Turn to God for the first time. Turn to Christ. It covers all sins. All sins. Lord, we do pray that you might work on us this morning. Double message here is that you save sinners, whether they're believers that need to be delivered from their own indwelling sin, or whether they're unbelievers, Lord, that need to be saved for the first time. Your word is powerful. Your word is great. Your word saves us as we hear it and as it changes our hearts through your spirit's power. Lord, we pray that that might be the case this morning, that your word have its effect. Let it humble us before you. You are an awesome God. So we pray that you would do these things in the name of our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.